Greetings, dear listeners. No spoilers in the intro from me this week. Shadi and I had no idea where this episode would go when we sat down to record it, and I figure you should be along for the ride just like we were. Head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and do consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet while you're there. Become part of the crowd. You'll get access to, among other things, this full conversation. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. Self-referentiality like this is terrible. You just gotta you just gotta live in the moment, man. Go on. Exactly. Well, yeah, some people are worried that I'm going through an existential crisis. They've listened some. to the last <laughs> many people some of are us. saying. Many people are saying. <laughs> yeah, so actually one of my favorite novelists, um, Zia Haider Rahman, who is a listener, he made some references. He loved the episode that we did with Rachel Rizzo. Yeah. But he did make comment that it seems like Shaddy is going through some kind of existential crisis about something or another. He called and... it an existential spiral. Oh, spiral. He oh, said, wow. Oh, Shadi going down an existential spiral. Must watch. <laughs> I agree with that. I agree with all of that. Fascinating. Yeah. So um, what, just got, what just got me thinking that I do have a tendency to kind of experiment with and explore ideas that are personal to me publicly Mm -hmm. and maybe maybe then like instead of going to a therapist like who who needs therapy when you have a podcast like in some you know let me just say before you go on on the podcast thing but i've always felt who needs therapy if you have good friends but go on even better yeah. Well, this is a podcast that I do with my good friends, so I suppose right. that it's not too different. And um, but anyway, I don't really think I'm going through an existential spiral, but we can save. Well, anyway, we don't have to save it. Look, here's the thing: I haven't, I haven't, I haven't yet uh, listened to uh, your other podcast, the podcast you're cheating on me with, ah. uh, Zealots at the Gate. Uh, the one, but you seems it seems I saw you were you were you were on your most recent episode. You were talking about again part of that existential crisis, the or at least the 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 tuning out of politics thing, which is I think at at least to me uh, the most outward facing part of your existential crisis. Right? Is that fair? I just think it's a change in behavior. Um, yeah. I don't think there's anything to get worried about if it's just about me ignoring the news. I don't think mm. anyone should be um, like that it might be a cry for help and maybe some people want me to follow the news and they're hurt by the prospect of me not engaging in kind of daily debates about like dumb political topics. Yeah. But I don't think anyone should be fearful for my soul or anything like that. Um, okay. But, but okay. So also just as some little background last night, I spoke on a panel that braver, this organization called braver angels was hosting on the future of the left and it struck not me that band. it was yeah not the band and it struck me as somewhat odd that i would be invited to kind of speak from within the left but um and i guess i guess i have been thinking more about 
whether or not I can still like if other people don't think I'm on the left, maybe I just have to respect their viewpoint. Or if other people don't think that I'm even center left because I violate core tenets of the new kind of left-leaning liberal faith, I do wonder to what extent we prior like do we prioritize what other people think about our political identity, or do we prior prioritize our own self identification? Because I think I'm living my truth. I think that I am like I believe that I am center left. Just like if someone believes that I wasn't well, I guess you can't really believe that you're another ethnicity, although maybe like oh actually some people do that now, but we've had we had many eruptions <laughs> of that during the woke thing, right? A lot of people <laughs> passing as 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 uh persons of color to get jobs. So I, I think you can yeah. believe that. True, yeah. true. But and, you know, if you if you can choose your um Sexual or gender orientation, why can't you choose your political orientation? Do you choose that? I don't know. Is that the orthodoxy now that you can choose it or that it's isn't doesn't isn't the repression thesis tied to the fact that like your truth is being repressed? Wait, I guess I just mean um, that people can decide or choose or self-identify as or as um, like non-binary or um queer trans and so forth i mean there's a number of different self-identifications and you're you know you're supposed to respect people's own personal self-identification there was a new one that i heard actually last night when i was talking to some of the some of the youth afterwards and i didn't make an effort i mean they some of them weren't happy with what i said Mm. but i wanted to hear them out so i held court a little bit and it was almost like a listening tour like a listening experiment where Shaddy, the increasingly old, perhaps reactionary person, is listening to the the youth. And I heard um, a word I hadn't heard before, agender. So a, a and then gender, which I don't wow. know exactly what that means. Um, huh. And then I was asking them, like, I wanted them to help me understand how they view white privilege. They were all around like 22 or something like that. And I don't talk to 22 year olds all that often. And it does really strike me that there is a generational gap or divide. Hmm. But anyway, um, but it makes me think that. So is it normal to be in the middle of your life and to start feeling that key political presumptions are changing? That used to happen a lot during the Cold War, where you had people who started off as socialists and communists. And then over time, they became neoconservatives. So that was actually a, a quite common thing. And there are so many books about people's kind of ideological journey. Um, and it does tend to be from left to right. I don't know what that says. You know, it says that perhaps as people get older, the temptations of reactionary thought become more attractive. What What's uh, that What's that saying, Shadi? Do you remember it? Like, if you if you're not on the left... Before you're 30, you have no heart or soul. And if you <laughs> are on the left after you're 30, you have no brain. Isn't that yeah, the, the yeah, actual Yeah, I think say? it's something like that. I think it's but, probably but, but, more 40, but yeah. But but the, the 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 that just suggests to me that it's not just the Cold War and neoconservatism, that this is sort of a tried and true, that there's act, it's not actually all that new. That like, you know, it's sort of part of growing up. Yeah. But... 
but uh, finish your thought. But I have some I have some thoughts as you were saying. Was what else were you going to say uh, on that? Like, well, I I don't think it's as common for people to publicly shift. At least I don't see it all that often. Um, maybe there's people I'm missing, but I don't get a sense that there's a lot of folks who six or seven years ago were left and now they're right. Although I guess people would say that Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald and people like that effectively did that, but they don't self-identify as right. They haven't written some books saying, um, this is why I moved to the right and embraced a new ideology. So I don't think that really counts because the Cold War examples are mostly of intellectuals who are open about their changes. They said, look, we are leaving the Democratic Party. We are no longer that. We are in the Reagan coalition. We are going to vote for the Republican Party. To my knowledge, the kind of anti-woke leftists are not saying they're going to vote for Trump in 2024 or Ron DeSantis. Right. Um, so right. I wonder, I just think it's a lot more risky now to kind of telegraph an ideological or partisan shift so publicly in front of other people because we live in a more tribal society where people are self-sorting and you would basically have to completely shift your acquaintances, your friends, even perhaps your marriage or whatever, because political divides can tear people apart. They can tear relationships apart because the personal is now political and the political is personal and everything is intertwined. So I just think now it would be harder to do like a mixed ideology marriage in Washington, D.C. Like, remember back in the day when there was like James Carville and Mary Matlin and they were they would they would be on opposite sides of like televised debates, like one on the right, one on the left. And somehow they would keep their marriage together. Like, I don't I think that's sort of passe. Like people aren't looking to Carville and Mary Madeline as examples to emulate anymore. Um, no, fair. Uh, a couple of points. Um, all I'd say about the neoconservative thing, of course, is that I think you're right that, that the sort of party shift. Now, it's been so long since I've really been swimming in these waters and really sort of, you know, I don't know, trying to excavate that period. But but it's. You're right that like Reaganism brought the big party shift, but, you know, the neoconservative stuff happened well before that, right? It was yeah. Um, it was at first a good faith critique, though some would say maybe not good faith critique, but a reaction to the failures of the Great Society and LBJ's um, uh, domestic, uh, you know, very ambitious, progressive uh, domestic social engineering projects. I mean, I remember, I remember, um, you know, so I got my sort of postgraduate school and maybe serious life start at the American Interest Magazine, which was founded by, um, among other people, Frank Fukuyama. Um, and that split started around uh, the Iraq war at the national interests, as I recall. And, you know, the lore was that, um, you know, there was a, you know, they had these board meetings, these these dinners where they'd have, you know, the great and the good gather. And um, it was the Iraq war that, that, that like, pushed Frank um, out of the then neoconservative uh, movement, which was... Yeah, in, he wrote a book about it, I think, yeah, he did, where he, he was did, parting he ways. Yeah. Um, and, uh, 
and and but the 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 argument that I remember Frank was was using then was neoconservatism was a critique of grand social uh, social engineering projects within the United States that um, these people thought failed. And I think at that point there were still Democrats, right? They were still sort of you know in the party. Um, and then he said how absurd it is that uh, neoconservatism today has become a party uh, a movement that believes that a grand social engineering project in a place like Iraq could succeed. I think that was like the, the, the you know, I think to me, a quite a persuasive zinger of Frank's at the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and he was just like, you know, neoconservatism has lost its way because it was a, it was a you know, a limited conservative critique among liberals um, of uh, overweening technocratic ambition uh, in domestic politics. And if it can't work there, how could it work elsewhere? But that's, that's just an aside to just point out that you know, uh, this was a group of people that came together around this critique of prevailing things, but didn't really shift parties until like late in Reaganism. And I think you're right. Like Cold War had a lot to do with it. Um, but I, you know, I think while a lot of people found a home in Reaganism, I think it's also not true that all neoconservatives were Reaganites. I may be wrong about that. Like, I'm not, not sure. all of them were, but I, I, I do. I think that most of them were. A lot eventually. of them sort of came around. And yeah. I mean, it was Reagan sort of, you know, sunny optimism about uh about about the soviet about defeating the soviet union and sort of optimism about america that that brought a lot of them around yeah uh because they, but they it's interesting was... now like a generation later or longer that you have neoconservatives some of them at least shifting back to the democratic party yeah right that's trump so um, i guess you can kind of do several shifts over the course of a long life um yeah, but but what I wanted to ask you, which you know we've gotten at this before, um, is is I, I'm I'm struck by you know this idea that you feel it's important to um, to have like a coherent identification. Uh, I've never felt really drawn to either team. We've talked about this. This is the whole team thing, and I you know you feel. You're feeling rejected by your team, I guess, is what it comes down to at this point, and so you're sort of you're you're sort of adrift. But but you know, I, it's always struck me, and that's what I you know, I guess admired about about uh, the early neoconservatives is that they were put off by orthodoxy, uh, a certain kind of reigning orthodoxy at the time, and they were like, okay, this is bullshit, and they um, they constructed a critique of that orthodoxy. And then landed in a different party, but that seems incidental to me. I mean, I think it's it's. Um, I know that it 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 like it got interpreted in a lot of ways as oh, these people are all Reaganites and all, they all became conservatives and neoconservatism. So they shifted from being Democrats to conservative like Republicans. But that's just that's just sort of that's not the important part to me. It's the important part to me is a group of people. Uh, I to my taste were, you know, mostly right about overreach uh, uh, during the Great Society and were mostly right in pointing out the failures and the blind spots that like technocratic approaches had. Um, and, you know, they just like let the chips fall where they may. Um, the fact that they shift shifted teams just isn't that interesting to me. And yet, yet like you seem haunted by this, this idea of- <laughs> I don't know if I'm haunted. No, but a little bit. I mean, we keep coming back to it, you know, this idea of like belonging to a team. And and so 
you know, I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously you're, you're a close friend of mine. You know, we've been doing this podcast for a while. I know how you think. I also know you're a serious thinker and things like that, but it's always struck me that, that it was so important to you to like be part of this team. I, you know, we've gone back and forth of a team, any team we've gone back and forth on this. I don't, I don't think I'm like, you know, like particularly brave or groundbreaking and things like that. But, but I do think it's important to just sort of have all that seem incidental and just sort of, I don't know, follow, follow, follow the road where it takes you, not, not worry about whether you're, you know, departing one grouping and joining another yeah. one. Oh, don't just worry. Sort of calling, definitely... calling shots, calling ball strikes, balls and strikes as you see them. You know what I mean? Not necessarily be, be wrapped up in that stuff. That's all. Oh, I'm definitely following the path. I don't yeah. know where it's going to lead me, but I am apparently following it. Right. I hadn't really thought that I could be part of a kind of, you know, group within the Democratic Party today that is challenging the kind of woke orthodoxy and that we become something comparable to the neoconservative movement. And we stay, at least for the foreseeable future, in the Democratic Party in the hope of changing it from within before giving up and moving to another party. I mean, I don't I don't ever want to do that. I don't plan on it. But again, like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in 20 years. There could be a massive realignment where just people of color leave the Democratic Party in droves and then right. the Republican Party does actually somehow become the party of the multiracial, multi-religious working class. This kind but, but of aspiration that Go ahead. But here you are again with with sort of like we, you know. So you, I remember you, you. Uh, I think along with Yasha Monk and others, you know, uh, put together that that Harper's letter. I think that was a a point, right? Uh, an important inflection point. Um, and uh, so that's a team, I guess. But you know. You and I know Yasha reasonably well. Uh, Yasha's got a new book out coming out soon, I think, and it's about wokeism and and its sort of things. But I don't, I don't, I like Yasha a lot. I I've never thought of myself and this to be on any sort of team with Yasha. You know, so it's not like me, you, and Yasha. Well, I wouldn't say me and you because I'm not. I don't really self-identify as a Democrat. But you know, it's like I I wouldn't think it's like oh I'm part of something with Shadi and Yasha that is now going to be shifting sides. I mean, that, that whole framework seems sort of besides the yeah, point. Yeah, it's a bit like artificial. I, but I, think I, I mean, new. I like Yasha. I think he's doing good stuff. I, I think he's smart. I really like talking to him. Don't agree with everything on uh, with him on everything. Uh, but I always profit from talking to him. Same with you, you know? Like, what's this team business? Like, who cares? No, but look, but I think the more interesting question is, what does it, what do we mean by the political labels that we use? To what extent... Yeah. Do they hold substantive content? Do they tell mm -hmm. us something about the world that we live in or the world that we're about to live in? And I think that tracking how people perceive labels and how they label themselves does tell us something important about the political and ideological landscape. So um, what does it mean to be a Democrat or a member of the Democratic Party? I would define it as a Democrat is someone who votes for the Democratic Party. Now, one might say that that's a little bit tautological, but it's tautological in the sense that, well, um, 
it's obvious too. Like, yeah, that's how it works. Like, what else could it possibly mean? That is what a Democrat is. But but that's why, you know, I, I'd rather consider myself as a, a voter with preferences and both parties sort of annoy me. You know what I mean? And I mean, so I guess I'm an independent, but, you know, whatever. What does that mean? My, my, my uh, uh, official party affiliation, which is, again, I think even in the American context, it's, it's weird because our, our, our parties aren't what parties are in parliamentary democracies and things like that. But I, I, I believe, honestly, it's been a while. I believe I registered as a Democrat so I can vote in, uh, in, in elections that matter in, in, in Washington D.C. Because the Republicans never going to win here, so might as well, you know, register as a Democrat because I live in Washington and to have a marginally more impact on local elections because being voting in Republican primaries is pointless, you know, in in this context. But that doesn't determine anything or any kind of loyalty for me. And certainly doesn't determine any kind of identity for me, I guess, is what it is. It's like, what does it mean to be a Democrat? I mean, I guess it means, to me, it's it's purely pejorative, uh, pejorative, pejorative, pe- pejorative. <laughs> wow. It's purely pejorative in the sense that, that, that um, uh, I would say if someone's like, I'm a Democrat, means that um, oftentimes you don't know what you think about stuff and you go into some echo chamber that self-identifies as Democrat and then like pick up your cues from that. Or, you know, you reliably read, um, uh, again, pundits, because that's their role is to sort of basically spread orthodoxy if they feel that way. And then you read a bunch of those and then just like mouth their ideas over and over. I think, I think that, that, that it's just lazy. Uh, that, 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 you know, in a, in our society, the ideal would be that no one identified with any of this bullshit that, that basically everyone was like, man, I don't know. That sounds kind of like crap. And then that, that, but that's completely idealized. Obviously that's not how, yeah, it works. But Demir, not how societies I mean, work, but, but still, you know, as an, as an ideal and what, as an, maybe an ideal I try and, and, and practice on my own is, is like a great deal of, of skepticism about both sides, you know? Um, yeah, but Demir, I think this is maybe somewhat unique to you. I think that you have a profound skepticism, distrust, and dislike for the idea of any group identity, hmm. whether it's a religious group identity or a partisan one. You you don't like that, um, and you don't feel that you need that in your own life. And you've said that oftentimes on the podcast that you're fine as is. That's mm. also why you don't go to therapy, or <laughs> or so you claim. Um, so, no, I have a podcast. If we just discuss this, exactly Who needs therapy. Yeah, but but most people aren't like you. I think that, like at a fundamental level, most of us desire identity markers. And if you ask people what are you, they'll give you a number of descriptions. So. Democrat is not, well, certainly I'm a small D Democrat, but that's a different thing. Completely. But I'm not, I'm not using member of the Democratic Party or someone who votes for the Democratic Party as my primary identifier. It's a secondary one. But it is, it is one of the ways that I see myself because partisan identity has become increasingly salient in American politics. So at some level, we're products of our own changing society. In a society where partisan affiliation matters more and more, 
it's going to matter more and more to me what party I'm in. Because this is, I'm, so other, if other people think it's important, we can't just escape that world and say it doesn't matter to us. Yeah, well, so, so let me, let me challenge that a little bit. And, and, and it's, it's hard for me to do because my family doesn't live in this country. Um, so I have to sort of challenge it uh, anecdotally to you. But even okay. someone who does have family in this country would have to do it anecdotally because I'm not sure how else you'd do it because polling wouldn't reveal this. Oh. But, but it's, I can ask you about your parents and your brother. Um, you know, uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, talking to uh, our friend Rachel Rizzo, who, you know, and she's mentioned it in the last podcast about how much time she's spent outside of D.C., um, you know, and how much she's enjoyed being back in Utah during COVID, uh, reconnecting with her, not just her family, but her friends out there. And what was most refreshing to her was, was in fact that, that like lack of that, 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 that politics and this partisan identification and affiliation mattered less. Now, you know, I think, you know, when you, you go back to say, you know, Salt Lake City or even our, our friend Sam Kimbrell, when he'd go back and he was telling us stories of going back to Colorado and interacting with his family and, and friends back there. Um, obviously, it'll map onto a party and you'll get interesting sort of echoes of how the news and all these things filter into people's lives. So, you know, the media plays a role in uh, setting up narratives uh, about uh, Trump and the Republican Party and what Republicans stand for. And on the other side, the you know, Fox does this as well, and all the other sort of alternative media sources about what the Democrats are up to and, um, you know, what their their goals are for the country. But, but you know, you'd get, I think, and I feel like you've said this about your parents, too, when you talk to them, where they're just like, Shadia, I heard X, Y, and Z about what's going on in the world. Like, is that true? You know, and 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 like they they turn to their DC offspring and friends to be to because they're in the shit and they're so deep into it to sort of help clarify it. But it's not like most people uh, even have it. You said Democrat is a secondary identity, but I, I feel like for a lot of people it's like tertiary or, or or even further down the line. It's basically they're they're living their lives, they're going to work, they're maybe getting into political arguments over a happy hour with friends. Uh, you know, some crisis erupts in the world and it breaks through the sort of wall of regular life and they're sort of paying attention to it and they're getting barraged about, you know, the political implications of this side and that side. And they're like, wait a second, the Republicans really not want to support Ukraine? That's crazy. We, we, you know, why wouldn't we support Ukraine? And that sort of stuff, because people aren't engaged and aren't following it very much. And so I wonder, I wonder whether what you're describing is a, like one of these like very DC things that, that, that this the sense of belonging to a tribe and party is something that's just very intrinsic here that you were See, even talking about like Carville and Madeline and the rest of that. And we here in DC, like, Oh, do you remember the time when James Carville and Mary Madeline were dating or like married and like cross party, <laughs> you go back and say James Carville and Mary Madeline to your parents or like, or to any friends back in, in Bryn Mawr. Like I like, they'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Am I wrong? Yeah, sure, but that could that could apply to any number of things that we talk about here on the podcast that sure. people might not be aware of. 
No, no, like, I'm just it, saying that that I'm just saying that it sounds very overdetermined. This this thing that you're saying about about you know uh, belonging to a tribe that is the party. I think you're right that things have gotten polarized. But I wonder if in in the real world, as it were, you know, the polarization happens uh, oftentimes by the time we're in election season and people start paying more attention and the media is just so nuts on both sides and is, you know, like, okay, in high outrage mode. And that then transfers onto people. But you and I have also- Yeah, well, just one one last thought. You know, the other thing is, you know, you and I have pondered why, why given the high stakes in a lot of these hyper-polarized elections, we haven't had civil war yet. And I think the answer is because it just doesn't matter that much to people like Republicans who believe the election was stolen uh, to Democrats who feel that that, you know, uh, Trump is the gravest threat, you know, since Ahoff Schittler himself, like, you know, it's it's. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. think I don't think that it's they don't care. I think that it takes a lot of effort, energy, attention, time and even perhaps money to like try to get into a civil war. Like it just really like, it's a very high threshold. Um, Like taking up violence um, against your fellow citizens or against the state. Like it's just like a very, first of all, like why would anyone really want to do that? Just think through that. Like, just let's think through these scenarios for a second. Like, why would anyone do that in America? So I, mean, I think we that did it it's once not before. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible, so, but I, I don't think that it's that people don't care about issues. It's they don't care enough about issues to wage violence. That's those are two different things. Do Do you think Do you think they care about this partisan identity that much to wage violence over it. That's my I guess my my case too. It's not about the issues. It's this idea of, of tribalism. I'm I'm just I'm pushing on this. I don't have an answer. I was just like I said, this is sort of anecdotal from talking to my American friends. I've listed you, Rachel and 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 Sam, but there are others who, you know, yeah. have family in real parts of the country. I just don't have access to real parts of the country like you guys do. But um I guess and, I'd and say I, this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Go on. That's all. So that, I'm just pushing yeah. on that as a as a counter. Fair. So go on. Yeah. Two points. One is, and I could be forgetting an example. I don't think that there have been civil wars in advanced, like for for a country as proper prosperous and advanced as America, like it would be completely, it would be completely beyond. It just doesn't happen. Like rich rich societies don't fight civil wars, fine. Until now, now of fine. course that can change, yeah. and I think that's part of it. In a late capitalist society, where people have their smartphones and have unlimited choice and can go out and do like pretty much whatever they want, like would you really want to give that up, or just you can just hang out in your apartment and just like not care? Like it just seems like. What would the incentive structure be for people to give up everything they have to fight a civil war? It just doesn't make any logical sense. But putting that aside, I do want to just push back against something you said earlier, that these are DC concerns and considerations. There is a growing body of survey data that suggests that some of this stuff has gone out into the crowd. Mm -hmm. So I just pulled up the numbers right now. There was... um, the 2021 survey of college students. Now, they are college students, 
So that would suggest a certain level of education. But still, we're not just talking about like DC elites who like read the New York Times or whatever it might be. But according to this survey of college students, it's actually, I, I mean, I love this stat because it shows a profound disconnect between Republicans and Democrats. So only 5% of Republicans said that they would not work for someone who voted for the opposing presidential candidate. So that means that most most Republican college students don't actually see this as a decisive thing. However, 30% of Democrats said they wouldn't work for someone who voted for the opposing presidential candidate. So that's a 25% gap. It gets even crazier when you look at dating. Only 31% of Republicans said that they wouldn't date someone who voted for the other side. But 71% of Democrats said they wouldn't date someone who voted for the other side. Again, a massive disconnect. So if we're looking at the younger generation, progressives and Democrats are really taking this stuff pretty seriously. Partisan identity and affiliation is how they decide sometimes where to work and how they decide who to date. Those are really personal things that we would otherwise consider to be somewhat immune from partisan tribal identity. So my concern is that this stuff is actually becoming more mainstream um, with people who are educated, like, people who are well-educated on the college level. So my first thought when you started <laughs> saying this, uh, the statistic, of course, is that it's college students who are the only class of people that are more useless than us in D.C. These are people who actually have no real jobs, have never actually worked a real day in their life. Um, and then you're asking them to opine who would they would like to work for. So they've never been in the fucking works, workforce. They've never actually worked real jobs, except maybe waiting tables. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, so that's part of it. I mean, like, I think college students, college is, is, is never, never land. Right. And that's part of, I think the other reason why, you know, that, that, that's that sentence we were, we were, uh, kicking around before about under 30, don't have a heart over 40, as you said, you don't have a brain, um, is because I think is, is, is largely you have to deal with life. You haven't dealt with life in college. There's no life well, in college. All you're yeah, doing is reading books and, and dating or rutting, really, not even dating. You know, it's just like, it's, it's just copulation and, and reading books. And that's, that's not even that's, true because the younger generation has stopped copulating, like the whole sex okay. recession. Okay. So well, they're not even really doing that. I don't, are they reading books? I don't know. Okay, so they're just sitting around and being <laughs> radicalized with dumb ideas without actually reading anything and not even having any fun. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, all I'm saying is, is, is I, I, now look, I, I will say that, that um, I've said this, I think, before on the podcast. Uh, it was uh, when uh, our, our also good friend and now my colleague Jason Willick, you know, joined uh, the American Interest back then. He came from Stanford and I had these like, long drawn out arguments with him at the time at the at the American interest where he was just like dude you don't understand campuses are insane and it's bleeding out of the campuses into the real world and I was just like no dude I I remember college I mean it was a while ago even then for me but I was like 
you know, that was insane too. It was just dumb, loony crap. And professors are also a class of just like useless, irresponsible people. And, you know, um, it just sort of, it breeds sort of kookiness, but, but the real world takes its toll. And so I, I feel like ha I have, I have had to reassess that and eat some crow on that, on that core belief. I think it has bled out of college campuses and you're seeing it with, with, you know, a lot of this social justice stuff and wokery and how that's sort of, you know, moving into corporations and, you know, the legal profession and how it's getting into lawmaking. So I, I, I certainly have been too glib about this in the past. I'll, t I'll take your point that, you know, maybe this is a barometer of something. Um, but I'm still, I'm still struck by, by the, this, this fact and fine, you know, maybe advanced democracies, advanced societies, wealthy societies can't go to civil war, but, but it's even what you said, you know, it's, it is the, uh, it's the flip side of, of wealth and, and the, um, the amount of choice of distractions that you have in an advanced society that you don't care about politics that much. It's also that life intervenes and, you know, you have to provide for your family and you're trying to raise some kids and uh, here save, we go. Money, save money for, for, for college and, and the rest of that. And mm. at that point, politics just matters less. And it's, again, that it's, it is, it's, it's, that's why I mean why in DC it seems so exaggerated, this belonging to a party where I, I just, you know, I, I think, People have these tribal affiliations and things like that, but I'm, I'm again just more and more. I'm always struck by how normies interact with my friends who have normie friends and and ask very normie questions about politics um, because they're just not that plugged in. It just doesn't matter that much. It's not a secondary uh, identity marker for them. It's maybe it's way down the line. It seems to me. Okay, um, before I get to my main point, I just want to share a little fun aside. Mm -hmm. So my mom on our little family group chat, she shared a meme. Mm. And the meme is just a kind of like picture of a quote. And it's not clear who this quote is from. It just may be something that people say. It says this, hate to break it to you, but when the richest people on earth tell you the real problems are pronouns and wokeness, they are trying to distract you from something. That's what it says. Mm -hmm. So she shared that, and then she asks on her group chat to me, is this true, Shadi? Three question marks. Mm. So clearly she's seeing this meme on Facebook, and she knows that we occasionally talk about wokeness, and now she's curious about this. But I think a lot of this stuff is filtering. Maybe it's not like front of mind. It's not front of mind for my mom, and my mom has often said, Shadi, all this wokeness stuff, I don't really understand it. But like memes spread. Anyway, sure. just a little sure. uh, data point. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you said something important about marriage and children, that life intervenes. And this is also at the heart of the quote we mentioned at the beginning, that you don't stay socialist after 40. What happens after 30 or 40? And it might be 30 because back then people used to have kids earlier, but now yeah. maybe we got to push it a decade so um, if becoming a little bit more reactionary or a little bit more conservative is a product of getting married and having kids and having responsibilities, then we have an important causal mechanism here. The concern then would be if increasingly young progressives aren't getting married, aren't having families, 
aren't taking responsibility in this way, they won't necessarily become more reasonable over time because the the mediating factor is not present there. And I haven't read the full article, but it's just something people were sharing. Uh, It's a piece from David uh, Leonhardt in the New York Times where he talks about how millennials, even older millennials, have stayed firmly in the Democratic Party. There doesn't seem to be an obvious shift over time. Uh, millennials are still very progressive, disproportionately so. And um, anyway, so um, we'll include a link to that in the show notes. I haven't read the piece, but maybe there's other stuff in there that might be of interest and relevance. But I do wonder if there is something different this time around, where because of these new trends of people not having children, because of climate or whatever other reasons, because they prioritize, you know, scrolling on their smartphones. I read something else today that was sort of getting at this point too, but I can't remember who wrote it, that there is a kind of, uh, anyway, we know what's going on. And if they're not having kids, I think it'll be interesting to test and see whether there's a big divergence among older millennials between the ones who do end up forming families and the ones who stay childless or partnerless. Yeah. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus. Thank you.